Hello and welcome to Bread and Rosaries, a podcast about the UK Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Ben Molyneux-Heathington and I host this podcast when I can be bothered. I'm joined, as always, by Adam Spears, who is a much, much more committed host. Uh, Adam, thank you for allowing me back. Do you feel better for knowing that you don't actually need me anymore? Yeah, I'm, I'm you know, I think the coup is underway. Um, we'll see how it pans out. Mm-hmm. But uh, knowing how my organisation goes, it's probably not going to work. Okay, so so your feeling is that you're more of a foot soldier than a general in the uh <laughs> I like I like to see myself as more of a prophet. Prophet. So you don't actually do anything. Okay, wow, great. wow. <laughs> and joining us for the first time, we have Lou. Um, I think you already know that you don't need me, but uh, would you like to introduce yourself to our lovely listeners? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Lou. Um, I'm Adam's neighbour, actually. Um, I uh, he had a lo- he made a lovely soup a couple of weeks ago that was wafting into the kitchen, and our whole kitchen smelt of this carrot carrot soup for quite a while there so uh you're welcome (laughs) thanks very much did you get any of the soup or did you just have to smell it my partner had the soup and loved it by the way and loved it (laughs) my partner did love the soup absolutely so we're we're big we're big fans of soup and cat my partner also lives with me very nice that's about it really so this week we are back to tackle the uh burning issue on uh, everyone's lips, which is, of course, uh, England's calamitous exit from the Rugby League World Cup at the weekend, (laughs) and also uh, the fact that the Church of England has inched ever so almost imperceptibly slightly closer to accepting uh, same-sex marriages, which is obviously quite big news at the minute. As always, the Church of England only ends up in mainstream newspapers, uh, either when they're criticising the government or more commonly when they are uh, turning themselves to bits again over same-sex marriage. So we will get to that. We aren't just going to do a whole episode about that, but we are going to talk a little bit about queer inclusion in in the church and what that might look like, both in terms of same-sex marriage and beyond that uh, as well. But before we get onto that, we're going to start, as always, with what else is on my mind, Grapes. What else is on my mind, Grapes? The first thing is actually something that was on Adam's mind, Grapes, that he sent across to me. And I realise now, I didn't check whether you actually wanted to mind, Grapes, this, or whether you were simply sending me something via Facebook Messenger. I just clicked on whatever articles you'd sent me and assumed you were mind scraping them. But did you want to talk about the letter in the Church Times you sent me? I mean, it it was actually the latter, um, but I'm happy to mind, Grapes it because it is a really interesting letter um it's a couple of years old now so yeah it's actually from 2018 and it's a letter from someone called vanessa hadley spencer who was um an ordinand who went to i think westcott yeah that's right yeah yeah westcott um who talks about selection procedures in the church favoring the middle class so she was actually responding to a church times article that was was talking about that and gives a, a really powerful kind of reflection on on her personal experience of of that and actually says that the article that the church times put out that she was responding to doesn't necessarily cover everything it doesn't necessarily get right to the heart of people's actual lived experiences and and the foundational issues as she puts it that are experienced by working class people going through the through the selection process uh, for the church of england and she talks about 
you know confidence being being a barrier which i think is something that we probably don't talk about enough not just in the church but actually just on the left in general how when you're raised in a working class environment a lot of the time you don't have access to by definition you don't have access to the same stuff that people from say middle class backgrounds have so you know in terms of education in terms of extracurricular stuff after you know after school um you know in terms of youth activities in terms of you know even things like quality of food time even so a lot of the stuff you know this is across the board and one of the ways that can affect you is is things like um confidence and i see that actually in in well, not only myself, actually, but in my family and in people that I know. So that was a really interesting point. Um, she talks about the lengthiness of the discernment process, which for her and for me too, could have ended the journey. I have by far and away, I had the longest discernment process of anyone I've ever met, um, as it happens. Um, and she talks about how this can be a massive barrier to working class people because it's about resources right and if you don't have the funds you know if you don't have the resources to continue with that process and and there's you know it's always up in the air as to what's going to happen next that can be something that again is a is a barrier to working class vocations um so there's a lot of things a lot of really interesting things that she she brings up in this in this article that really really resonated and actually it's more than just the fact that we don't have access to the same resources it's it's actually that there's a, a culture of middle classness if you like in the church so so even before you get to the point where um you're thinking about vocations and you have to deal with the fact that you don't have access to the same stuff actually barely any working class people go to church anyway because it's a it's a foreign culture you know it's it's a a, a very weird and, and different thing so yeah, really, really fascinating article that uh, I was sad I didn't catch when it came out um, four years ago, but I think is as is as true now as it it's, as it's ever been. As you were speaking, Adam, I think I was really thinking about the the intersections, really, um, or the intersectionality of the experience of so many of us who have been through the formal discernment process and how if you don't fit a certain mold a certain kind if there's any sort of difference in you from the prescribed norm the process becomes so much harder and it's so diocesan dependent and who your ddo is and all of those things and whether they understand your theology and i think often i found when i was going through the process that the language that me and uh, the official people i was speaking to was very similar we were using the same words but they meant very different things and that i think is part of the problem or part of the confusion when it when it comes to it um because we're not actually always talking the same language in fact we're not talking the same language often in the church of england yeah and which experiences do we value which experiences are suddenly in vogue so to speak and which are still too slippery too risky too abnormal perhaps from the structures and the systems and I think it's that's what that's what kind of worries me um I suppose about sort of what's going on at the moment and just this lack of recognition of intersectionality so of course there's a real push for people of color 
to enter into the church. And there's been some really good reports recently about the structural injustices which are happening. But we have to look at the intersectionality of that. If you're a queer woman of colour, are you no longer welcome? If you are a black disabled person, are you no longer able to train for ordained ministry? It's just looking at all of those barriers that we, we come as full embodied people and we can't split that off. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And actually, um, I've, you know, experienced beyond class some of those things in the discernment process as well. You know, being autistic, being disabled, those things were things that made it more difficult. Not necessarily because they should inherently, but because, yeah, there's some level of miscommunication or you know, misunderstanding uh, at certain points with certain people, which isn't to say that I didn't, you know, I, I feel very well supported actually by my diocese generally and, and by my, um, you know, DDO and, and Bishop and all of those people who are, who are sponsoring me and, and helping me through this. But there are still, you know, some very significant issues there that are pr certainly present for me. And I think even more present for many other people. And I'm I'm reminded of Azariah France Williams. His book Ghost Ship was really interesting on this because one of his major points is, you know, we can have these pushes for greater inclusion, um, you know, specifically in this case of black clergy um, or, or for black people to join the clergy. But actually, just getting more black people in the church isn't going to change the structures of the church that make it actually very difficult for a black person to to be in the church and specifically to be a member of the clergy in the church. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd really recommend, actually, that, that people go and read his book, Ghost Ship. He's publishing a new one soon, isn't he? Is that right? Oh, I, I'll look forward to it. I think so, yeah. I was just thinking as you were speaking, there's there's this whole narrative at the moment in terms of inclusion or unconscious bias or diversity training or whatever that means. And actually, I think one of the criticisms is that we then sort of accept the right kind of black person, the right kind of disabled yeah. person, the right kind yeah. of autistic person, the right kind of gay person. And that is so tricky because actually then we put an identity marker, we put a norm on there, a codified norm of what is or what isn't acceptable, again, within those categories that continue to do, you know, so much harm, the the, the oppression that's that's apparent, and it makes it more and more difficult. So, you know, there's this whole thing about growing a younger and more diverse church. But if it's still within the same structure, then who are those younger and more diverse people when the structure itself needs to do a lot of changing? Yeah, I think that's really important. And, you know, I think I really liked in that letter the way they brought it back to material stuff, you know. And obviously that's that, that affects working class people, but actually affects everyone in those sorts of processes. You know, yes, we can change ways of thinking, structures, all this sort of stuff. But actually, I guess, you know, I want to be a uh, a classic leftist and, and just being like, yeah, but what about the material factors again and again? And I'm not someone who is, you know, purely, you know, class reductionist or whatever you want to call it. But But actually there is... Something so important about saying you can send every bishop in the Church of England on, you know, meet, uh, go to a local council estate days and get to know local working class people and, you know, all that stuff. Uh, but if they can't afford to go through the discernment process, if training is going to be financially impossible for them, then it kind of doesn't matter if we're, 
the most forward-thinking, inclusive, right-on church that the world has ever seen if the financial and material support isn't there. And that's not the only issue, but it is a, a foundational issue that, that stops people getting involved. And I thought she did a really good job of drawing our attention back to to the importance of it. And, you know, obviously, I'm married to an ordinand. The pair of you are currently training. So in some ways, this is just us all banging on about how we don't have enough money. But um, but that matters, it is, right? It is, and it, it is and it isn't. You know, it does matter yeah. massively because, you know, that is that is absolutely, of course, important. Um, but it's also the resources that are available. And I think back to when I was formally discerning and I worked for a church job who obviously understood the discernment process so I could have those conversations with my line manager and they got that and they got why sometimes I had to do certain things. I was also able to afford to work part-time but the other times I was doing my prep for the next stage or I was volunteering in my local church and all my weekends were full and that's me as a able-bodied, I hate the word able-bodied, I don't even know why I said it, but that's me who's someone who doesn't have any disabilities, who has a very supportive partner, financially, generally okay. All of that kind of stuff was present and around for us. I have a theological background academically, and it was still really, really tough. You know, goodness knows if I had to work two jobs, or I had children, or my partner couldn't work and or I had a disability, or various other things that make it more difficult. It's a tough process. Yeah, 100%. And I think about, you know, the work I do, I'm currently doing an alternative cover job, but my usual job, I uh, I work shifts. And actually, probably two Sundays in a month, I am I'm going to be at work, and that's not uncommon for people who do shift work. And so actually, just the very fact of doing shift work even the, even if you were you know an extremely rich shift worker which obviously is not generally the case but that's probably going to make it almost impossible for you to do all that stuff because you're only at, at your actual church be able to get involved in the services and volunteering on a sunday h- half the time assuming you do nothing else in your life so you know even just things like shift patterns and shift work is going to you know actually hold people back from from discernment processes and you know they may have to change jobs if they want to do the discernment process which is all well and good but obviously people don't always discern that the call is to preach the call might be to carry on working and that's a big risk and change for someone to take on a maybe there's so much risk involved isn't there and that's the thing because if you get a no that's that's the end and there's so much risk all the way through from beginning to end that actually you might turn around and get the no so you give so much of yourself into it but you also can't give too much because if you give too much it'll destroy you jesus weeps for gaza he sees the pain and suffering of the 1.9 million people who have been forced to leave their homes without access to nutritious food, clean water, decent shelter. He hears the cries of the 25,000 orphaned children. He is with all who mourn the 250 people killed every single day. Christians for Palestine UK is a group of Christians who are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine. 
We don't pretend to have all the answers, but are united in our prayers, hope and action for equality, peace and justice for all the peoples of the Holy Land. Together, we are organising a Christian presence at the National Marches for Palestine and Local Days of Action, where we've been joined by siblings from Sabil Kairos, Pax Christi and a whole range of Christian churches. We urge you to join us to act in solidarity with the people of Palestine and call for a permanent ceasefire and just peace. The Very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell, Dean of St George's College in Jerusalem, says, I warmly welcome the newly formed group, Christians for Palestine UK. Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank need to see the solidarity of Christians in the UK and they will be encouraged to see your commitment to stand up for them in their time of terrible suffering. To find details of local actions or to join the Christian bloc at a national march, follow Christians for Palestine UK on Instagram and Facebook or email ChristiansForPalestineUK at gmail.com. Join us as we call for a ceasefire now. I originally got a not yet um, response, uh, which, you know, fine, is a legitimate response you can get. But, you know, we don't always necessarily realise what even that can can do to people because it suspends you in in a state of, um, well, suspense, I suppose. (laughs) Um, You know, I suddenly I had two years or so to wait. And I had nowhere to live and I had no money and I had no, you know, and what I had been planning on doing was either training or going and finding another career. And actually, I had to figure out what I was doing for two years um, with without any help or, you know, people did help me, of course. But like, you know, and, and I think there's there's a cultural shift almost a, a subcultural shift that needs to to happen in the church i will often be sat in a, a seminar or a lecture or whatever here where where we're training and someone will make the remark something along the lines of well of course you know we we all have it easy here you know we don't um we don't have to contend with the same things that people in such and such place do and like to some extent that may well be true and also it's good that people are realizing that people have it hard but actually there are people here in this country who who have it hard and people here in this church who have it hard too when i moved in here to where i'm training now i moved in with yeah a few things but basically no furniture and no money you know i didn't have a bed I didn't have a sofa. I didn't have a table. I didn't have anything um, because I've lived a very sort of transient life because I had to. I had to move from place to place, sometimes, you know, sleeping on sofas because that's that's my background, you know, um, and I get a little frustrated when, you know, you're in class and, and people say, well, and, and people just assume that everyone in there has it super easy. And I'm like, who's we? You know, um, you know, I'm not saying 
that I have it as bad as as people in certain parts of the world who have absolutely who who are completely destitute. But I have been technically homeless. I have had times in my life um, as an adult and as a child where I couldn't eat. You know, th- those are things that I've experienced. And you know, the church clearly is seemingly unaware that actually the mission of the church isn't to paternalistically give what we have to to the poor this category um that you know in some respects is a a completely legitimate category but actually is to to help people realize critical consciousness um and to be a part of that the church should be a church of the poor not a church that exists to do to the poor yeah, and I think that question of who is we, I think that's so, so important because people talk about we and in their head they're thinking we is in either in your case kind of people training to become uh, priests or people who are just in the church more generally. But that we always comes with caveats, right? Like when they say we, they're only able to conceptualise. I mean, all of us are, not just other people, are all only able to conceptualise that we to an extent through our own experiences. So that we probably is a lot more middle class uh, than perhaps it's intended to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, you know, that's why I say that's why we need a, a, a cultural shift. Um, and it's difficult to know how, how that can happen, actually, because that cultural shift, I think, can only happen with and through those who don't experience things as, as they currently are. But how are you going to get to that point if they're not in the church? And it's really hard as well, because certainly around my sort of queer family, my queer colleagues, my chosen family, so to speak, there's this real sense of why on earth are you going into the Church of England? Why on earth are you there? And I wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be training if I didn't love god and i didn't love jesus and i didn't love the church but in order to make that cultural shift there are people like me and i'm not trying to be a martyr for the cause at all this is where i feel god has called me to be but there are so many levels and layers of vulnerability when you are called to this certain life to try and push along that cultural shift and it can be very tricky and it can be interpreted as well if you're critiquing the church with a capital T and a capital C, then you don't love the church or you're not committed to it or you're not really a Christian. And there's this weird kind of misunderstanding of the complex truths that we hold and the paradoxes that we hold in ourselves, in our bodies, which means that we actually do hold all of those things together and we hold them all together in tension because that is what god calls us to do yeah exactly and and i mean you know it's exactly that thing i i love the church and a part of the reason i love the church is because at my lowest ebb in life it was the church and specifically this church that loved me and is it an imperfect church yeah it really really is but part of my love for that church is to call it to be better and and to critique it and sometimes critique it fairly pointedly and heavily if it needs to be um, but that does not mean that I don't love the church, precisely the opposite, in fact. It's that critique that comes out of a deep love and a deep commitment to see Christ everywhere for me, which I guess is quite similar because I, I suppose I have a similar story to you that when I crumbled and I fell, it was the church that put me back together, a local parish church. So we all have those stories 
of belonging and healing and whatever other words we want to use. And it's painful when you see the institution that you are a part of doing things that you cannot simply agree with or saying things you can't agree with. So let's tackle our main topic of the day, which is the recent news that I'm sure you've probably seen that uh, the Bishop of Oxford, Stephen Croft, has um, come out in favour of uh, the Church of England allowing same-sex marriage. Um, I believe that the bishops all went away together, had a little, um, like, uh, I don't know what you call it, gathering. In my head, I'm just now having visions of, like, them on a lads' holiday together, um, possibly. <laughs> They've gone possibly... to Marbella. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, uh, they they went away. It was the end of. I think it's. The, is it finally the end of living in love and faith, or whatever they call it? It is the end. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, it's it is and it isn't. I think we the bishops are meeting again in December. Yeah, it seems to be endless. In the beginning, there was living in love and faith. Um, and it was with God and it was God, etc., etc. <laughs> this is kind of, we're nearing the end of that process, which has been, depending on how cynical you are, either the process of the Church of England discerning how to move forward on same-sex marriage or the process of the Church of England trying to kick the can down the road. You can, you can make your judgment as to my view on that. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that the outcome, I don't think, was even a discussion of same-sex marriage. So I think when this process started... I could not envisage, even in when Stephen Croft put in his... I know, I've not actually read it because I've not paid the money yeah. to read it, so I'm hoping it will come into the library. <laughs> um, whoops! Um, but I didn't think that equal marriage would even be on the table, would even be a possibility. I thought that that was a pipe dream. The very fact that that is an option potentially on the table or that's something that the bishops are discussing feels kind of amazing, because I thought the best the best option in the best possible world and the best possible conversation at Synod would, would be some sort of pastoral acceptance or some sort of affirmation of LGBTQ people in the church and or at least getting rid of issues in human sexuality. Oh, Lord. The yeah, very fact... Yes, exactly. The very fact that they're even discussing equal marriage makes me think... Like, oh, whoa, will will my original hopes actually be filled and the cup overrunneth, you know? Yeah. Which seems really sad at the same time because I think, yeah, wow, the thing that I was really hoping for would to, would to be get, getting rid of a discriminatory document that's so awful. But it's been such a toxic process and debate, actually, I think more than a lot of other churches. And so I understand why, you know, that would be the thing that you clung to for for hope because actually there is only one side that is compromising and the only compromise that would be a compromise would be to say that some churches can choose to and some churches can choose not to that is a compromise right but for so long you've had one side that have been trying to compromise largely and, and say well churches can choose to or choose not to and one side who say absolutely not um the only compromise is basically to keep it exactly as it is and maybe we'll say that we love gay people or something but like 
you know that that's about it and and you know that that has been where the debate has seemed to be at for so long so no no wonder you know your hope might stop at some kind of pastoral provision that's the word i was looking for provision (laughs) i'm glad you got there because i lost that word in my brain (laughs) what what i've been i suppose for me something has changed with Stephen Croft saying what he said, and I hope more bishops will follow suit in December, perhaps, is that actually now you can see the theological position which affirms the sacredness and the lives of LGBTQ people and their relationships is being taken seriously yeah, as a robust theological position. And I think that that hasn't been the case before in the conversations in the Church of England at the upper echelons of power. It has always consistently been on the margins, something Mm. that we're a bit scared of, something that we can't really talk about. It's always defensive. It's always about the clobber verses. It's often in response to as victims, as opposed to people who are flourishing and living their lives in Christ. So to actually see that robust theology of queer affirmation coming through gives such hope to me that actually we're going to see things change because those who are more on the conservative end they are going to have to accept that this is a theological position that people through deep biblical study through deep thoughts about doctrine through everything else ecclesiology or whatever have come to and it is a legitimate position because you know in the same way I don't agree with what the conservatives say but I'm and perhaps I wouldn't say it as a legitimate theological position, but I respect the fact at the you know that they have that theological position. But also, you need to respect that I have my theological position. It is not less than. Yeah, exactly. And and I think where there's real, real hope in that, and you, you know, you're talking about accepting people's theological positions as legitimate, even if you disagree with them. Part of the reason it's so big that this bishop, in particular, has said this, is because he's an evangelical absolutely mm. and actually I, i'm sort of in in a sense actually not surprised that that happened because you know in the church of england at the moment the you know it feels wrong to talk about it in these terms but 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 effectively the the power in the church of england falls largely on the evangelical side of the church at the moment not that you'd know it from listening to them but yeah it's true <laughs> well yeah yeah exactly a lot of them do seem to think that they are uh, constantly oppressed and under attack but you're right you're absolutely right they're, they're currently in the driving seat yeah um now he is you know he calls himself an open evangelical which you know slightly fluffier form of evangelicalism but it, it's it's big that an evangelical said this um i don't think it would have had the same impact if say uh, an anglo-catholic or or even you know someone who was more liberal or broad or whatever had said it because actually it wouldn't really have marked as as big a shift in thinking on this and you know i think you know stephen croft trained i think at cranmer and he's a fresh expressions guy he was a missioner for fresh expressions for for a while as well so like he is firmly in that tradition um, and it needed that voice to do that rather than someone who, who would have come from a different wing of the church, I think. Yeah, and I think in some ways the significance is someone coming and saying it publicly. You know, it's been known for some time that there are bishops who are supportive of same-sex marriage and queer lives. But with the exception, I think it is just, in terms of serving bishops, 
I think prior to this, it was just Alan Wilson, who is the Bishop of Buckingham, I believe, yeah. who who was publicly a serving bishop who supported it um, and has done for some time, to be fair to him. The joke is always, of course, that bishops suddenly discover that they're pro-same-sex marriage the day after they retire. So there has been a culture of, of silence. And there was a really interesting statement by uh, John Inge, who is the Bishop of Worcester, I believe, um, who yes. who said that he basically supported what Stephen Croft had said. And then he tweeted, I stand convicted of being silent for too long in what I persuaded myself was the imperative of unity. I offer my apologies to all those who have been hurt. Now we can debate, and I, I'm sure as you can guess, have some opinions about how much that particular apology might mean without practical action or the rest of it. But I think it is what, what it tells you is that there have been, and it won't just be him, we know it's not just him, there are a number of bishops who have known for some time that theologically they have no objection to same-sex marriage, but have towed the party line. And what's exciting about the Stephen Croft thing is that it indicates that actually the time for keeping quiet about this is over and that that probably indicates that forward movement of some description is coming. I have two quotes on my wall, one from Desmond Tutu and one from James Baldwin, and obviously they're both very famous ones. If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And James Baldwin's one is, we can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and right to exist. And I think if I had the courage, (laughs) and this is me talking about being neutral, I would send that to our bishops. Yeah. Mm. Because it's not unity. It's not an equal playing field. We're not sitting there discussing the conservatives who are married perhaps are able to be married and have those rights in the church. They are able to be welcomed. And by welcome, I don't just mean tolerated. Yeah. There are so many things. This, this for somebody who doesn't agree with equal marriage or doesn't agree with the flourishing of LGBTQ people, to be honest, I find it really, really difficult that you can be a Christian and think that because the idea that we oppress other people just feels like the complete antithesis of yeah. of what it means to be a Christian completely. Um, and I wish that the bishops perhaps would be able to say, more of them will be able to say, actually, yeah, this disagreement is rooted in the oppression of a group of people who should not be oppressed. Yeah, absolutely. I had said to Ada that we were going to try and do a, a you know a generally positive episode. This is good news, but uh, I do have to let my inner cynic out. It's great that these public statements have happened. I'm not going to be applauding the people who've made them, with the exception of Alan Wilson, who was well well in advance of everyone else. But at my most cynical, I think what we're seeing here is people who kept quiet for political reasons, sensing that the uh, political atmosphere in the Church of England has shifted, and now they're going public with their views. It might be harsh to call it just another form of cowardice, but I, I certainly don't think it. You know, you 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 a bishop standing up for what you believe is kind of meant to be built into the job description. Like, I'm not going to applaud you for for saying publicly what you fought for years and let people suffer without saying anything um obviously that john inge tweet i think was uh, was positive that recognition that actually their silence was was dangerous and damaging and i think there are people whose lives have been harmed immeasurably by by the silence on this so 
yeah, there we go. There's my there's my little cynical bit. There's my negativity because I can't I can't be happy for a whole episode. Yeah, right. For the whole episode, give over. <laughs> there's there's a lot more in us than that. <laughs> I'll try my best. I think the thing that we have to look towards is what's going to happen in February, because it will be interesting to see the politics that are at play in Synod and whether the bishops are going to push for something really, I'm going to say radical, like equal marriage. How radical is that? (laughs) If the the bishops push for the gold star, shall we say? Only, Only LGBTQ people are allowed to get married. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, let's go with that one, okay? (laughs) I have a question, In fact, only lesbian separatists are allowed to get married. (laughs) Oh, shit, because my question was about whether, how that works for those of us who are in, uh, so I'm obviously, I'm I'm straight, but I'm married to a queer person, so would I still be allowed to get married because it's like a half queer marriage, or would that, is it it full, just not allowed to get married if there's any straightness at all? No, well, no, no, Sarah's allowed to marry you, but you're not allowed to marry Sarah. Fair enough. Well, that's that's nice and clear. So if we go down that line, if we see that as where the bishops are going, the bishops are going to read um, Judith Butler and <laughs> yes. Marcella Althus Reed or something, and then they're going to yeah, come yeah. in December and it's just going to be... Some... Yeah, oh, don't, don't, don't get us excited. Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> no, 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 no. So if that's like our gold, gold star, our platinum star or something, yeah. and then actually what are they, what are they re- realistically going to bring to Synod in the confidence that it will pass because I wonder whether there it will be interesting to see what they push for because actually will they push for equal marriage or do they think actually will synod vote that down because the laity in synod is quite conservative so we'll have to see historically am I right in saying that that um the ordination of women did had to go more than once, or was it the women bishops? I can't remember, women but bishops, had to go yeah. to synod more than once. Um, so I, I do wonder if, yeah, uh, the certainly in in from what I've not like you, I'm not going to spend the money on um, uh, Croft's booklet, but uh, the from the reports that have been you know put, put out about it, what he is advocating for is essentially a form of alternative Episcopal oversight. So, which is what we've got with women priests at the minute. There's going to be so many alternative Episcopal oversights. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's that was going to be my question. What, how do we feel about the idea that we would end up with... So you've already got a few bishops knocking around the country who um, look after the clergy who don't believe in the ordination of women um, and kind of have a... They're like a separate Church of England within the Church of England. He's suggesting some form of that, again, for priests that won't bless same-sex marriages do we think that is a plausible way forward no (laughs) simple i like it (laughs) (laughs) no i think it's one of those things this is what i find so hard about alternative episcopal oversight because it feels so often like a fudge yeah (laughs) a fudge a fudge. In, uh, in, a fudge. In the Church of England. Come on. <laughs> hey, I did the cynicism. You're not allowed to do any more cynicism. <laughs> positivity, happy vibes. Yeah. I was reading about in the Church of Sweden when they first ordained women, which was a long, long time before they did in the Church of England. And basically what happened was is they said after a deep discussion about theology and women's roles in the churches and that kind of thing, they said... This is now the teaching in the Church of Sweden. If you are an ordained man and you don't agree with the ordination of women, that's fine. You can continue to practice and be a priest and all of those things. However, we will not be ordaining 
anybody else who doesn't affirm the ordination of women. Yeah. And then that was that. And it changed. What's happened now, however many years, is it 30 years since the vote was first passed when it comes to the ordination of women? This sense of unity or mutual flourishing or whatever, it does not help anyone to flourish. And there is such disunity already through the various streams of theologies that don't affirm the ordination of women, because it's not just one group. There are various kind of theologies around it. So there's not one... It doesn't feel like there's one official line in the Church of England at all, even yeah. though we all sign up to the five guiding principles. So who knows what actually one really thinks? Or So there's no, I don't think there's any unity on it. Or it doesn't feel like there's unity on it. At least before women were ordained, we kind of knew where the line stood. And I think my worry with also further alternative Episcopal oversight is that we become so split in so many ways. And maybe this just shows the cracks that are already there. And maybe yeah. actually... It just highlights that we are a very, very divided church when it comes to gender and sexuality, but also when it comes to race, when it comes to disability, when it comes to communion or baptism or what is a sin and what isn't. So it is a right old plate of fudge. It's a whole block of it. (laughs) So do you think, I mean, it's interesting this because like my answer to it was going to be, well, you know, alternative Episcopal oversight it's better than it not going through. But is your position kind of like, no, we've got to do it or not do it because, you know, yeah, of this whole splintering thing? I think if the Holy Spirit has worked in a way where the bishops are perhaps united with the fact this is what that this is what the holy spirit has changed has saying to the church of england today we believe that god is involved in this because of course we believe that god is involved in this and we believe that god has spoken and this is what god is saying to us then we should have the courage to do it you know come on and that's what i kind of wish as we continue for this fight for equality for women in the church of england God is clearly calling women. God is clearly calling LGBTQ people to life in the church. Again, I'm trying not to be too cynical, but uh, as soon as you said talked about, oh, if this is what the Holy Spirit is saying to the bishops, my immediate thought was, oh, that's that's generous that the Holy Spirit gets anywhere near bishops of the Church of England. That's... <laughs> wow! <laughs> well, that's you, what you said, yeah, not you, me. You can say that because you're not because you're not going to be ordained. Yeah. <laughs> This is another one of those like Jeremy Clarkson and Richard the Hamster Hammond moments, yeah, yeah. isn't it? You know? <laughs> Does that mean that I'm James May, for goodness sake? Yeah. <laughs> As established, I'm here to say the things that you can't say because my paycheck does not depend on uh, <laughs> on playing nice at the Church of England. I do think there's something as well, like from my perspective... I totally agree, Lou, that I, I, alternative physical oversight just seems stupid to me. But then there's part of me that says, well, I guess because I, I don't have a particularly Anglican theology at all, you know, the concept that, well, you can't have a boss who doesn't believe the same thing as you because then his magic hands don't count properly. I, I, it's just ridiculous to me. <laughs> like, I don't think I've ever had a, you know, don't, I don't get many socialist bosses uh, even even working in youth work, sadly. Um, so I've always had bosses that I presume don't have the same views on stuff as I do. Um, but obviously that comes from a very much uh, different theology to what the Anglicans would espouse. And it's also the matter of bodies, isn't it? It's the matter of mm. bodies, and this is the thing, right? So there is nothing more... In fact, there are a lot of things that hurt Bob. But for me, one of the most hurtful things that can ever happen if somebody... In fact, we see it in the Bible all the time, right? If somebody will not touch me. 
because I am mm. unclean or somebody will not get close to me. And there is such pain there. You hear time and time again of women who men in their congregation don't take communion from them or men in their congregation might walk out or a man in their deanery won't preside next to them or anything like that. And it's all this, you know, we talk a lot about, oh, is it actually the theology of taint or isn't it not? But there is nothing more hurtful than to have your humanity reduced that you are unclean in some way that you cannot embody Christ. That's what it comes down to. It's not just disagreement because we don't agree. That's fine. But when it's the matter of bodies and when it's the matter of literally our chromosomes, like what? I think you've touched on something really important there because the depth of this, I think we often don't quite realise how homophobic some of these people are. I was talking to someone recently who said that um, when someone learnt that, and this was a priest, these were both priests, and when when this priest learnt that this other priest who was gay was going to be at this service this particular service they declined to come so that they didn't have to share communion with them neither of them were presiding right they were just there at the same service where communion would happen and that is a level of homophobia that goes beyond what a lot of us realize is there and that's why i think you know we have to start asking ourselves questions about you know well actually are there some people in the church where we need to say to them actually if you decide that this is the path you want to take then we won't have you in our church anymore. get fucked mate <laughs> that is, word that is one way get that fucked, is one mate. way of putting it that is one way of putting it but like someone like you know we've talked about um christian concern in in the past um and how awful they are they are a christian fundamentalist group that operates um not entirely but largely within the church of england and their um the their main person andrea minicello williams is a member of of general synod right and and so they are so deeply embedded in this that you know, if we're going to have these discussions and come up with, you know, if we're going to say this is now the the line of the church, then do we need to do what essentially what you're saying and say, well, this is our line. You can like it or lump it kind of thing. You know, not that you can't come to church on a on a Sunday, but actually, you know, we're not going to ordain you or, or or even potentially elect you to synod. I think it's it's really hard and I don't know where the boundaries or the lines lie so to speak but in when you're going through the discernment process you have to tick a box to say you're not part of any far-right groups and that's very clear and we don't accept people who have well who tick that box i don't know how arbitrary a box is but we don't accept people who are part of those groups we certainly wouldn't well i would hope that we wouldn't accept people who were overtly racist or anything like that but what i'm going to say something maybe quite um, do it do it (laughs) <laughs> i'm sure i can outdo you if you need someone to say something more controversial i'll i'll, I'll chip in don't worry <laughs> well what's the difference between saying it's a legitimate position that women cannot be ordained priests and therefore i can be ordained priest in the church of england and it's okay to think that and it's a legitimate position to think that people of color should not be ordained priests yeah. do you know what i mean Because they're both awful things. And one of those things in the Church of England, we absolutely, thank goodness, we we do not agree with. And the other thing 
is seen as a legitimate theological yeah. position. And for me, those are both as difficult and as hurtful and as wrong because we are all made in the image of God. And there probably was a time where there was people who would have absolutely, you know, unquestioning said it's not okay to ordain gays, women or blacks, right? Like that. There was that a time. And, and, yeah. Within living memory, right? So, like... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, within so, living memory, yes. So I don't think you're, yeah, I don't think what you're saying is controversial at all. But I think you're absolutely right that, you know, that, what's the difference really when you get down to it? It's that one argument has been thankfully mostly settled and the other two are to varying extent supposedly still live, but they're, they're fundamentally still just discrimination in different forms. Yeah. And what we are fundamentally saying is that some people are clean or pure, some people are made in the image of God, some people are holy, and some people are not, simply by the bodies that they have. That's the fundamentals of it. The choice is, am I going to be fully welcoming to women to LGBTQIA plus people, to people who have what we would generally consider to be a protected characteristic? Or am I going to be fully welcoming to those who say, actually, those people are sinful and wrong or, or shouldn't be allowed to do the same things and have access to the same jobs or, or ministries or callings that, that the rest of us do? You know, do I want my gay friends in the church or do i want fundamentalists like andrea minicello williams in the church I, I know who i would choose it's the difference between saying oh, i wouldn't be friends with a gay person and i wouldn't be friends with an asshole yeah right <laughs> one of those one of those is extremely prejudiced and discriminatory and disgusting and one is pretty normal human behavior because like, if you think someone's an asshole <laughs> you don't want them in your you know like we don't invite people who uh, are you know have these views on this podcast? That's not because we're discriminating against them. It's because we think they're I don't know. I'll say scum. I'm not sure if you're allowed to say scum, <laughs> but I will. Wow, maybe it's time for me to leave. <laughs> yeah, to be, to be, who's on the scum to be fair, list? Ben, I'm friends with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously we're both happy with No, but there's a diff there's a difference, isn't there, between being someone who's a bit of an asshole and someone whose beliefs and actions actively traumatise people. You know, that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, we're talking about people's lives being lived in an environment that traumatizes them and i don't want to enable that environment to move us slightly onwards obviously you've talked Lou, about kind of the, the platinum star being a bunch of uh, bishops turning up with their uh, Judith Butler and telling us all about uh, <laughs> queer, th queer theology and how it's now at the heart of the Church of England. And Absolutely. obviously, obviously, um, we can we can pray for that, but uh, even the Holy Spirit can only work so quickly. Um, but I think it is an interesting question to think about if in February the Church of England passes or takes the first steps towards the acceptance of same-sex marriage and god willing that is what happens there are people who will see that as the end of the road that we have queer equality in the church and obviously we know 
all of us here that that, that isn't true. You know, uh, you only had to look in this country. Obviously, you had same-sex marriage passed in 2010. Is that right? I think it was later than that. Yeah, because the coalition government came in in 2010, didn't they? So yeah, 2014. Oh, it was yeah, 2014. Yeah. So uh, same-sex marriage was passed in 2010, um, and no, it wasn't. uh, Oh God, damn it! (laughs) (laughs) It was passed in the mid to twenty. It's only making it worse. (laughs) It was passed a little while back. It was definitely uh, passed, though. Whenever yeah, it was passed, it, happened. it was it passed. <laughs> um, my point is that, obviously, queer equality has not been achieved in this country. Um, and, in fact, over the last few years, as Adam, you talked about with Robin last week, uh, there's been backward steps on particularly trans equality. And we are starting to see, I think, what a, a lot of us warned about and were concerned about, which is that the anti-trans backlash is becoming an anti-queer backlash more generally um more specifically i should say actually because an anti-trans backlash is always gonna inherently be anti-gay as well whether it's intended to be or not but we are starting to see that so we know from that experience that simply allowing queer people to marry the person of their choosing is not the end of the fight or the end of the struggle and so to kind of round today's episode off, I wanted to suggest that we do a little bit of dreaming and think a little bit about what, what a queer inclusive Church of England or church more generally might look like beyond simply same-sex marriage. Wow, what a way to yeah, end Yeah, I know. Today. Small question. I think... <laughs> small question. I think that probably my dream at the moment is for us to have a good theology of bodies and sex. We don't have that at the moment in the church and we need to be able to talk about it because the very fact that we are not talking about it means that so much damage is done. So even if we do get equal marriage in February, we need to be actually able to talk about bodies, embodiment, queer lives, queer stories, sex, sexuality, pornography everything else does that make sense yeah 100 percent. that's what i would love to see i think um kind of uh, prompted by thinking about all this news and the stuff i recently started rereading queer theology by um lynn marie tonstad yeah which is a very good book i recommend i am not someone who has really covered a lot of queer theology i i have you know, encountered bits of it, but it is definitely a bit of a um, a hole in my thinking. But that book was really great. I've read it a number of years ago now, and I've been rereading it to kind of reorientate myself and re kind of consider this stuff. And one of the points they make is that the idea of queerness includes this idea of returning to the real material actual reality of the world of bodies not just thinking in a kind of abstract sense but actually queerness always demands a return to to real bodies to real people away from the kind of idealization of things um into the actual reality of it and so i think that i think you're absolutely right in some ways you you can't really do queer inclusion without first dragging people back from the lofty heights of you know idealization and theories and whatever into the actual reality of humans and their bodies i mean i guess we might want to contextualize that in a broader inclusion one of the biggest things we need to be able to do is to speak honestly 
without feeling like we are needing to tread on eggshells or feeling like well actually that we that we can't speak often there have been things that have felt like they're not inclusive or even not safe in a church environment that i don't feel i can raise right and 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 that's a problem because if i don't feel like i can raise them you can be sure as hell that other people don't feel like they can raise them you know so um you know i'm not going to give a specific example but there have been times very recently where i as as a an autistic person have felt unsafe in a particular church but i haven't felt able to to speak up about that and if we're going to to be inclusive across the board not just for autistic people not just for lgbtq people for all people there's a fundamental shift in the way we talk to each other that that needs to happen and and you know i talk about this fairly often i may have talked about it on the podcast before i i don't know but one of the things i really would love to see in the church is um, an engagement with non-violent communication because you know having lived in a uh, a, a cooperative for a while that was sort of run on uh, anarchist principles you know was it perfect no of course not but actually it made you more able to challenge things and to challenge things and ideas without feeling like you were attacking someone as a person and you know to be challenged as well so if the church can grapple with those kinds of ideas i think that would be a a, a really good kind of foot in the door of of you know inclusion a good way to try and start to to deal with that kind of stuff i think that is a good point to end things on thank you very much for joining us lou thank you adam for holding the fort while i was uh going and living my much more exciting glamorous life yeah don't let it happen again (laughs) (laughs) uh lou is there anything you'd like to plug or anything you'd like to tell people about or would you like to tell anyone uh where they can find you on the internet or anything like that i don't know how they can find me on the internet everything is private that's very smart i I think that's a good decision yeah but it's been it's been great to join you thank you guys Adam, where in the world can people find you? You can find me uh, on most platforms at commie X-I-A-N, although, as we know, Elon Musk is destroying Twitter, so maybe not on there for too long. Whilst we are still on Twitter, uh, we'll be there at bread underscore rosaries. You can find us at facebook.com slash bread and rosaries. You can email us breadandrosaries at gmail.com. We aren't on like Mastodon or anything because I can't be bothered to work out how to do that. So if Twitter goes down, just find us on Facebook or whatever. And as always, you can find us on our usual podcast feedy places. I should have said at the start that this is... Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break now, I think, uh, at the end of this episode. Um, I think we're going to call it the end of season two. I'm not really sure what the point of how seasons on a podcast is, um, but Adam and I are both extraordinarily busy for the next, uh, well, forever probably, knowing the pair of us, but particularly <laughs> particularly for the next couple of months. So uh, I think we're going to do a little Christmas episode, celebrate Christmas at some point, but we will, well, at Christmas presumably um, but we will be back properly in the new year so uh, yeah we'll see if we stick to that this time I'm, I'm hopeful we will uh, cool thank you very much for listening everyone and we'll see you next time thanks guys bye see you later.
Martin was bright as he stood up and sang in the choir. His heart all in pieces was breaking. His head was on fire. Took him from that place and they buried him deep in the ground. Out with the light and quiet the sound. And it's a slow revolution that quietly turns. And all other people marching together out across the floor. And all that was after is now as it was before.